Retro Fanfic Retrospective, the podcast where we dredge up old fanfiction and expose it to the cold, harsh light of 2021. Or sometimes we do whatever it is that we're going to be doing this episode. My name is Amato, he, him, and with me are... Tori, they, them. And Dom, the interstate highway, she, her. (laughs) (laughs) I knew one of you was going to introduce yourselves as the something. (laughs) I should have thought about it more, but that came at me right before the start. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I'd want to be an interstate highway. That sounds a little bit traumatic. Yeah, no, it's just interstate highway sounds like a relatively unpleasant form of, you know, place to be. Yeah. I, I couldn't think of any other street synonyms, though, in time. <laughs> That's okay. Someday you will metamorph into something that is more ideal. Yeah, we can do rename the whole thing later. Yeah. <laughs> Dom the bullet train line. I do like trains. <laughs> hmm. I was just thinking of Chunking Express and like, what sound would Dom the train make? Okay, Tori, <laughs> thanks for mentioning Chunking Express because now I have the song stuck in my head again. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I watched, you know, I watched that as part of my film studies class in college, just like intro to film. And the best thing about that class is that we watched a movie every week. And uh, California Dreamin' has been stuck in my head since college. So song. A good well, song, yes. I've been thinking about that movie because my painting instructor has been pulling stills from Wong Kar Wai films for us to paint from. And I'm just like, that's cool. Well, thanks for joining me tonight. It's going to be a weird one tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, Dom, you... You decided to hop into the conversation because you were like, I've read some Doom Patrol and I like Doom Patrol. Mm-hmm. And then I had to break the news to you that this, whatever we're talking about tonight has very little to do with Doom Patrol. Right. So but, I think my job tonight is just going to like interject with how I like or didn't like different Doom Patrol characters and storylines. That's fair. <laughs> it would definitely get us more on the like sort of fan fiction theming here because despite the fact that this book is called doom patrols yes it actually doesn't reference i think it makes a point to reference doom patrol at least once per chapter yes. but usually it's sort of incidental and and not more than a paragraph usually just a couple sentences so much more of it so this isn't going to be like our this isn't going to be mm. like our pre-start discussion where we're talking about how much we like danny the street <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately yeah. no i mean it might um, become that uh, <laughs> i mean but... I almost would rather, but... <laughs> Should I describe how we got here? Please. All right. So I was looking at a fanfic author's ancient plain text HTML website for their fanfiction and assorted links, like you do. And, you know, they they mostly wrote Gatchaman fanfiction. Are, are, are we familiar with Gatchaman, any of us? Gotcha. Battle of the Planets? No. I mean, okay. heard of, not knowing anything about it. I mean, their helmets look like birds. Does it involve gotcha? <laughs> <laughs> there should be a gotcha mon gotcha game. That would be great. But um, I think it's not a big enough franchise. I'm getting gotcha mon crowds references when I'm Googling. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. Maybe I did watch some gotcha mon crowds. Anyway, they also had various links to stuff. One of them was for Doom Patrol, a collection of links to info about Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol for DC Comics. This was clearly like pre-Wikipedia and stuff, you know, it was like where you can find information about what this thing is. And under creative links there, creations inspired by Doom Patrol, they've got a, you know, basically mixtape someone made. Oh no, it's, it's, it's the one this person made, like a soundtrack to it, a fanfic that this person started and did not complete, and a link to Stephen Shaviro's, quote, Doom Patrol's hypertext novel. It's called Doom Patrols. It says it's a novel. And the description that this person gave is Shaviro's Doom Patrols uses Doom Patrol, among other things, to talk about postmodernism. Some of the specific chapters are more Doom Patrol related than others. Yeah. That, is ac- that is accurate. That's accurate. But it's yes. described as a novel. And the author also calls it fiction. And so I was like, oh, maybe this is like a bunch of stuff, but there's a little bit of fiction in there in some places. Maybe he's like, doing weird formal stuff, but at some point it's going to like break into being, you know, Doom Patrol's fan fiction or whatever. And it turned out, no, absolutely not. At no point is anything that I would call fiction. 
No, it's not fiction. Um, the author says it's fiction. <laughs> it's not. I mean, I can't say it's particularly grounded in fact, but it's the <laughs> author. It's an author's personal essay. It's their reactions to media, um, to various theorists, and a little bit to Doom Patrol. But really, it's just their personal opinions. Yeah. Well, it sounds like, from what I've heard you all uh, lamenting, it just sounds like their personal opinions about stuff. And if they say that's fiction, then that means their opinions aren't real. Well, you know, that's actually a really good point, Dom, because this author is working very strongly from a postmodernist standpoint and post-structuralist standpoint. Mm -hmm. So I can see how in their mind saying this is fiction is just as valid as saying it's <laughs> fact. However, and this might be the time for me to just jump into my platform on postmodernism, which is okay. it's great to deconstruct, you know, a lot of social norms, right? And and really talk about, you know, like, and sometimes even be a little reactionary and saying, like, we shouldn't all think in a certain specific way. But what a lot of postmodern postmodern writers, this one in particular, fall into this trap of being like, well, nothing's true, nothing's defined, nothing's real, words don't matter, language means nothing. And then they go on to say a bunch of stuff that sounds definitive. Well, at the same time saying, well, oh, you can't criticize that because nothing's real, nothing matters, and it's not definitive, right? Or, I, you know, yeah. there's no way I could have meant anything by that because nothing means anything. It's just, it can be a bit much. Yeah, and you're, just to be clear, Dom, Troy's not exaggerating. This author gets to the point of saying words are meaningless within the first chapter and then has another 16, 17 chapters. Like, uh... And yeah, I, I found it a little bit hard to approach or a lot of times follow. But there are a couple of things I'm actually excited to talk about from within this. So that's good. It's better than no things. Yeah, as someone who just read a big chunk of the Grant Morrison Doom Patrol fairly recently, it makes sense that that kind of person would gravitate towards that kind of franchise. As we're moving forward, can we get like a two or three sentence description of what is postmodernist i'm doing air quotes <laughs> i don't think i understand postmodernism the author specifically says um postmodernism this is the, the in the first paragraph in the preface right mm -hmm. postmodernism is not a theoretic theoretical option or a stylistic choice it is the very air we breathe we are postmodern whether we like it or not and whether we are aware of it or not for this very reason the word postmodernism isn't explicitly defined anywhere in my text its meaning is its use for better its multiple and contradictory uses as these emerge gradually in the course of the book. Are... Um, yeah. So I, I just want to ask to see if I'm anywhere in this bright ballpark. Tori, is TV tropes postmodern? That's a really interesting question. Um, no, because oh, postmodernism, look, and this is... Like, let me be clear, it's a very hard thing to define. In fact, I think if you're talking about postmodernist theorists, that's even like you can say these names, right? You could say, like, okay, McLuhan might be a little bit postmodernist, or like Kathy Acker, or you can, well, Acker being more of a fiction writer, but like you, you can say these things, like these are postmodernist theorists because they're all sort of grouped together. But it's hard to say what postmodernism really is about, except kind of reactionary and saying like oh i mean i sort of said it earlier it's sort of a way to look at the world that says it, it kind of denies objective truth it's sort of anti-moralist right and honestly sometimes very anti-scientific which is i think why it's hard to define because science is rationality it is the basis of how we exist so when you say you're anti-rationality you're basically saying you're nothing you're saying i i'm going to be chaotic for the sake of being chaotic and not that there can't be benefit to that, but I think it works to the detriment of a lot of uh, postmodernism. Okay, because some of the vibe that I was getting about what postmodernism apparently was, was this oh, awareness of the culture that we are in and the way the culture shapes our thoughts, and therefore kind of like this multiple, you know, dimensional perspective on how our own thinking is being shaped like something along those lines. And so I thought I was being clever by saying like, hey, TV tropes by like breaking down every component atom of our storytelling culture seemed postmodern. It might make too much sense. <laughs> exactly. That's just the thing is like postmodernism has the seed of that idea. 
And that's a good idea. That's that's the thing I like, right? Um, Your tone of like, voice said, that's a good know. idea. I like postmodernism. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because that that's not that's not a part of it. Like, I don't want to come off as completely and totally critical because I do think postmodern writers, I've read a lot of them. I'm really into it for a while. Contribute a lot of interesting ideas. But unfortunately, where it falls down is that sort of post-structuralism element. It's the element of we don't have to prove our points and we can say what we want. And it becomes sort of like a circle jerk of writers just referencing <laughs> each other and not actually making clear points. And it's like, it's okay, it's fine if you want to do that for fun, but don't purport yourself to be, you know, doing anything new because anyone can just spout off ideas without any point of reference. Sorry, well, rant over. The one thing that this does have is a point of reference of sorts. Because, Dom, you were saying that, oh, it, it makes sense that sort of person would be a fan of Doom Patrol. And the thing that makes this most like a fan work is the fact that this author is clearly a big fan of Doom Patrol. And he spends basically every chapter kind of, he's touching on something or a character in Doom Patrol. And then he spends a little time saying how it's so cool that Grant Morrison is doing things, this, these things with this character or this concept in Doom Patrol. And then he goes off from that into some discussion of something launching off from that. So it's kind of like, I, I, I feel like I read Dungeons and Dragons and philosophy a while ago, and like I wanted it to be more about Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing specifically, but instead it was more like the Tao of Pooh, where like they're just kind of taking a thing and then they're like, oh, and this reminds me of something I actually wanted to talk about. Yeah. Um, there's a mm -hmm. little bit of that in here. Which seems like a bummer, because, like, there's a lot of jumping off points to, in Doom Patrol. Like, lots of different character identities, self-identities you could talk about. And, like, concepts of thoughts and of reality and constructing reality. And, like, just going with the characters, if you talked about... Uh, What's the character's name? Robot Man? Is that right? Yes. <laughs> How that's like post-humanist. Does tactile sensation mean you exist or not? And like, it seems like a bummer. This guy was just a linker. <laughs> well, look, Dom, we're complaining. But actually, that discussion that you were, that you were like, oh, she talked about this. He did. He did. It's chapter six. Mm -hmm. It's just that. And, and he talks about those same things. Like, obviously, he's like, oh, yeah, this is so cool. And I want to talk about it. It's just that. It's not focused. It, it starts focused, and then it gets, and then it just goes places. I, I'm not sure how to describe it. I I couldn't retain enough of it in my mind to be able to describe <laughs> what places it goes. There's a reason for that. The author doesn't really. Well, I mean, I guess they do follow some structural elements. They break their essays into paragraphs, etc. But they don't. Their paragraphs don't have you know, their essays don't have theses at the beginning. Like each chapter is theoretically about a different topic and it sort of is, but nothing is to a point. Like an individual sentence might espouse an idea, but then it will jump to almost like stream of consciousness, a related idea, or very often a related quote, right? Or like a quote the author thinks is related. But that means that you're never really getting to a point. You're just getting a series of ideas. And, you know, if you enjoy that sort of thing, that's fine. It's just, it's hard to, um, it's hard to get much from it. Mm -hmm. Because nothing I, is really proven by the author. Mm -hmm. I'd just like to say, by the way, going back to the preface, first sentence, it's the first couple sentences. He says, this book is a theoretical fiction about postmodernism. Okay. A theoretical fiction because I treat discursive ideas and arguments in a way analogous to how a novelist treats characters and events. And when I was reading this, I was, I was looking for that. I was like, is this in any way analogous to the way a novelist treats characters and events? <laughs> I didn't see any structure that seemed analogous to me. Tori, do you have a different perspective here? No, I completely agree with you. Because um... I was like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to see where he goes with that. Was this a one-person project? Because it sounds like they could have used an editor or something. <laughs> Interesting that you mentioned that, Dom, because it was published. I mean, it was originally put on the internet, and then mm -hmm. it was published, and I found, like, a, you know, review that seemed quite favorable of it. Mm -hmm. um, let me see if I can pull that up again. Do, do, do. 
Doot 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 is the sound of Googling, by the way. <laughs> yeah, of course, Hamato. Duh. <laughs> it's like, in my mind, an, an essay that makes this work would be like something that used that as a point and then kept on coming back and referencing the character instead of just like mm-hmm. taking an idea and going off into space. Like, keep on yeah. bringing it back yeah. to a point that brings it back to a relatable thing in the character. But then again, I like things that are good, so... <laughs> you know what? I didn't find the review I was thinking of. I found another review of the mm-hmm. published version. Uh, and it's it's less glowing. <laughs> it says, While Shafiro draws some interesting connections between the theory of natural selection and postmodernism, his book is still a party gathering the same tired, talked-out guests. Warhol, Burroughs, Baudrillard, I don't know, Deleuze, Baudrillard, Foucault. Yeah. One gets the sense that Shaviro is trying way too hard to impress a readership of the converted. That sounds like a better writer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Bataille. He makes so many references to Bataille, and I am so tired of Bataille. <laughs> All right, well, let's get into something, like I said, that I'm excited to talk about, okay? Because mm-hmm. we've been doing this podcast for a while, and we've talked about fan fiction from a few angles a few different times. Mm-hmm. And chapter one, which is titled Grand Morrison, because all of the chapters, um, are, are named after a famous person of one stripe or another. He starts getting into the concept of pastiche and plagiarism and recombining ingredients of stuff from other works of fiction. And the direction he's talking about is that Morrison in Doom Patrol is like gathering all these like, you know, memes and, you know, bits of like cliches and inverting them and playing around with them and all that kind of thing. But then he gets into content that I, I just brought me right back to the whole, like, I feel like fundamental grounding of this project that we've sort of stumbled into. Here is, here's a section of one of the paragraphs. Um, Stealing is a thrill in itself. This enjoyment is the real reason for postmodern appropriation. We aim to undermine those convictions of authenticity and truth, of proper meaning and right order that sometimes seem to be as dear to Marxist dialecticians as they are to bureaucrats in the Pentagon. Speaking in my own voice is a tedious chore, one that the forces of law and order are all too eager to impose. They want to make me responsible, to chain me to myself. Quote, man could never do without blood, torture, and sacrifices when he felt the need to create a memory for himself. Nietzsche. But forgetting myself, Speaking in others' stolen voices, speaking in tongues, all this is pleasure and liberation. Let a hundred simulacra bloom, let a thousand costumes and disguises contend. And, I mean, it goes on in the next paragraph with lines like, Irresponsible free play is our best response to a cultural landscape supposedly composed of fragments and ruins. And, you know, he, he has all these things that I feel I get at some of this. We ended up kind of discovering that fan fiction is anti-capitalist and kind of, you know... And this sort of thing, I feel like, over the course of this podcast. Yeah. And I think we've enunciated it in much clearer ways. But I will say that <laughs> the main thing I wanted to say is just that this points to one of the main problems of the text, which is the Nietzsche quote came totally out of left field. I'm oh, yeah. not sure. See, the author does this a lot. They make many, many quotes from theorists, but they don't bother to describe or, you know, sort of like compare their point to the quote. And to me, I was like, oh, well, it's interesting. You obviously have an interpretation of how that's relevant, but I would like to know what it is because I don't know intuitively. And that happens all the time. And also it's often done with the tone of like, well, Nietzsche said this and therefore done deal. Right, right, right. And it's, you know, there's also no context given because there's no citations. They don't give page numbers. They don't say which text it's from. They don't give a page number, so you can't go back and find the context. It's almost as if they're giving themselves some leeway to say, whatever quote I draw, you know, you just have to take it as is, because I'm not going to give you a context. It means whatever I thought it meant, even though they don't even explain what they thought it meant. They're just like, for some reason, this is related. Sorry, I'm getting a little too passionate. I'm going to stop. Yeah, yeah, don't interrupt my positive groove here. Well, I can just just say I'm I'm enjoying watching the uh, effect this essay seems to have had on you two. It's like (laughs) the effect of being cornered by that one person at the party you don't want to talk to who's really into their own political treaty and corners you. But this is in like distilled poisonous form that exists throughout time. (laughs) Okay, 
I'm going to get a little bit personal and say that <laughs> my the the main reason I've read, you know, people like Bataille um, and some of the other, like Deleuze and Guattari, is because my ex was super into this stuff and, like, took it, like, gospel. And unfortunately, the postmodernists are a little, like, self-religious and... I remember these arguments. Like, it's almost a little personal. I'm like, but no, this doesn't make sense. It was like, oh, but it does, because, because, because it doesn't have to make sense. Like, it's that loop of, oh, yeah, no, it doesn't matter that it doesn't make sense. And it's like, yeah. why does it matter? Because it does. Yeah, I, so anyway, it's a little bit personal, honestly. I didn't know all that about Tarin. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't Tarin. <laughs> Thanks to God. Oh God, can you imagine? <laughs> the thing is, I, I almost can. I mean, knowing Tarn since middle school, I could, I could see Tarn going through a period yeah. like that, if not that exact. Yeah. And Tarn's never read any of, well, maybe not, maybe some of, probably read Nisha, but not the other ones. Man, we used to have yeah. the stupidest arguments, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and it's a really good point. It's, it is frustrating to read someone who is sort of talking in a self-important way as if they're making a point only to realize that they're not making yeah, any I, point at all. <laughs> and I'm not sure if they are making a point exactly because they're talking about Grant Morrison stealing stuff in the comics. And it's like Grant Morrison makes a lot of references, draws on a lot of things, but they tell you up front who and where it's from and what it means and kind of kind of present it as a mission statement of this is this is the reference and I'm going to talk about it and this is how I'm going to use it. And I don't think stealing is an appropriate term for that as much as, as like recontextualizing or like um, transforming media. Yeah. <laughs> Transformative works, we might say. I was drifting towards that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but no, I take your point is that like when he, when he gets into phrases here, like, plagiarism, blank mimicry, parasitic borrowing. Uh, none of those describe what Grant Morrison is doing, which is mostly just making a lot of references and then doing a lot of clever things. Yeah, well, it's referencing and then like, oh, so the next part might have a reference or a play on this idea. And it's not presented as Grant Morrison's own stuff at all. So, mm -hmm. No, he like Morrison is making references and that's not unique. However, I think the author wants it to be because like uh, maybe people who don't, you know, if you haven't read a lot of postmodernism and especially you, Dom, who didn't really read this, I can see why <laughs> you'd be like, oh, that sounds really negative. But I don't think the yeah. author wants you to think of it as negative. They want to think of it as this human condition. Yeah. yeah, and liberating. Like, because the one thing that I kind of like about a lot of postmodern theory is this sort of liberatory aspect of like, we can reframe these negative terms. They talk a lot about, you know, assholes and shitting and, and gross stuff, but like reframe them in a way that makes them less undesirable because the only reason they're undesirable is because of our cultural context. So that has some benefit, but again, I don't think the author's correct here. So <laughs> uh, again, as someone who's didn't read, didn't read the essay and not planning to it just kind of, seems like from the personality type that they're saying stealing in order to absolve themselves of responsibility of defending themselves or explaining themselves. I mean, you may be right, but but I, I really like their point about kind of the imposition of responsibility by the status quo of culture, because it, it makes me think of all these fanfic authors with like people around them being like, oh, you're writing, are you you're going to try to publish a novel? And they're like, no, I write fan fiction. That's what I do. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I'm not trying to monetize this. I'm not trying to legitimize it. I'm not trying to create something that I can attach my name to in a like culturally acceptable way. I'm writing fan fiction about the Rocketeer or whatever, you know? <laughs> um, I, I'm flashing back to that meme from that issue of, of Spider-Man and the X-Men where you know, Spider-Man saying to Sauron, like, you can rewrite people's genetic code on a whim? With that, you could cure cancer. And Sauron says, I don't want to cure cancer. I want to turn people into dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> See, that makes oh, sense. Man. Just like the live-action Super Mario Brothers movie. Yeah, just like that. 
Remember anyway. like, the evolution? Okay, never mind. <laughs> anyway, that's all. I, I just I just liked that chapter because it made me appreciate again the like liberation, not just from certain rules and certain societal expectations that's involved when you decide you're writing fan fiction instead of something that's not fan fiction. <laughs> so with this essay though, is it like each chapter its own thing or does it have an overreaching uh, I don't want to say plot, but point they're trying to make, perhaps? Well, it would be very liberal to say that the author is any sort of overreaching point. <laughs> Sorry, I think I gotta, I gotta stop being so... But aren't we very liberal? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, don't get me wrong, the author has a lot of interesting ideas, but uh, each chapter has a different title, and they're either names of theorists, like I think one's called Kathy Acker... Or like theorists or writers, like one's called Kathy Acker, one's I don't know, one's called Cliff Steele. Yeah. Even though it doesn't have a ton to do with Cliff Steele, one's called Bill Gates, and like so each has a sort of theming. There's one that's really heavily about insects and how insects are better than people, basically. That would well, like yeah, throw me up a wall. I was like, excuse you. <laughs> oh, that was the one about the fly, and it was um, oh, what's his name, the director of the fly. I thought that was the one about sex mostly and, and saying how like insects. Oh no, I guess that was, that was the one about various animals where like, oh, and there's so many like more cool creative ways to have sex than humans have because like, look at all these cool animal ways to have sex. And I was like, yeah, but, but isn't the point that any given species can only have sex in one way? Cause I, I mean, okay, not to mention yeah. sexuality, but what I meant is like, it's not creative. It's just what they do. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, yeah. A little bit. Oh, I have a lot of thoughts on all that, but let's like just to get to the point. Um, I can. I've got the chapter names. So chapter one is Grant Morrison. Two is Walt Disney. <laughs> uh, three is Belinda Butcher, who's the lead, uh, one of the lead singer, I think, and maybe guitarist for My Bloody Valentine. That's that's a whole chapter about My Bloody Valentine. Uh, He's a co- fan of My Bloody Valentine. Oh yeah. <laughs> Actually, that was the chapter I liked the most because the way he describes the music was actually really cool. Uh, but anyway, one's Michel Foucault, uh, Cliff Steele, Kathy, I'm skipping some, William Burroughs, and then David Cronenberg, who was, I think, the director of The Fly, Bill Gates, skip, 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 Phil Pullman, Andy Warhol, and Dean Martin is the last one. I didn't get that far, so. And Dom, you asked if there was a, like an overarching point. Mm-hmm. I mean, look, I didn't finish it. I didn't even get as far as Tori. So, like, I I cannot speak and say that there is not one. But for right. the most part, the structure uh, is that each chapter is its own <laughs> argument and its own, you know, its own focus. Okay, but that seems sloppy, but... Each sentence is its own argument, to be completely honest. Like, not even each paragraph. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I do think there's some theming, but, like I said, it's a bit stream of consciousness. Like, uh, the author, for instance... Uh, Usually, when I get to the end of a chapter, um, especially because I was listening to this a lot when I was driving, the last sentence, it would just be like, my you know, computer phone would be like, there are no further articles to read. And be like, what? <laughs> what just <laughs> happened? That was the end? <laughs> like, I just never felt like it came to strong conclusions in any formatted structural way. So. Corey, I, I appreciate, I like that the pattern of your, you know, dis- part of this discussion has been to say something negative say, oh, I shouldn't be so negative, and pull back a little bit. Yeah. And then by the end of your point, you're back into negative. And you're right. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't well, think I'm not you should, wrong. Yeah. No, I, don't, I just mean I'm enjoying seeing you try to struggle with this over and over again. <laughs> oh, dear God. I, I have to admit, I am, I am experiencing lots of, um, most of the word, Schwadenforda. <laughs> <laughs> with E.T. recalling this essay. Schwadenforda is like, pleasure at other people's pain i i don't so. yeah that's, that's what anyway. yeah yeah, yeah. No. oh you i i see what you're saying yeah i'm just so self-conscious like <laughs> i really don't want to be so down on this author but like i said it is a bit personal and it's also i have a really strong opinion about people who purport to be authoritative on on issues and yeah, this I, is really really alienating to a potential reader who might think, oh, I don't get it. I must be dumb. And yeah. they're not dumb. It's just that the author is making them feel dumb. And I'm not saying that's intentional, but I am saying it's a little malicious because the author really is not making a ton of points. So, Yeah, I tend to not like people that are 
authoritative on something if they're not also extremely apologetic about it at the same time. <laughs> well, if they are, a, then I trust yeah. those people. Otherwise, yeah. See, you know, I'd be fine with the kind of like, you know, all over the place, the discourse and like fun references and like interesting ideas, which there are some. If the author was just like, this might be true or this may be true, instead of saying like, this is wrong and this is right, like very authoritatively, even though they're supposed to be coming from a school where there's no objective truth, um, which I also have an issue with, but nonetheless, it just, it, it mixes you up a bit. Well, Tori, let's drag you kicking and screaming into positivity, because I already talked mm -hmm. about my, you know, the part that got me hyped and that, like, I wanted to talk about and kind of second, at least to a second degree, at least to a certain degree, I mean. Um, but you keep mentioning, like, oh, there's some parts that are, like, really interesting thoughts or good points, or you mentioned liking the My Bloody Valentine chapter specifically. Are there any parts of this that you want to talk about specifically in a non-specifically negative way? <laughs> oh, dear God. A lot of question. I'm being that negative person. No, I did. Um, I did like the My Bloody Valentine chapter because the author spends a decent amount of time just describing what the music feels like to them. And this has a lot to do with breaking down gender barriers and also barriers of physicality, which seem very related to the author. They have an ongoing line about drag, which I'm not sure I always follow, but they have a clear concern with gender and with how bodies are gendered. And again, this was written like 95, so they don't always have the best language. Yeah, my impression is that when he's talking about drag, what he's trying to get at is gender performance. Um, mm -hmm. Was that more or less what you got? But, but of course, it was written in 95 to 97, so. Most of the time, yeah. But, like, the interesting thing is that he also draws from a pretty popular, like, non-binary author who, like, initially, early on, trans was, like, assigned male at birth and then transitioned and, like, identifies as non-binary in, in this day and age. So, like, when that discussion comes up, Gosh, why can't I remember her name? Oh, well. She's cool, too. I like her writing. She wrote Gender Outlaw. Um, anyway, when he brings that up, it seems a little more real. But then there's times where he uses drag, and it's just like, I'm not sure you're using it. Mm -hmm. But I really liked, because he stops using any of those terms when he talks about My Bloody Valentine. He says that the music sort of evokes bodies in the dark. And he describes the idea of like having sex in the dark where it doesn't matter what someone's like physical form is as you're touching them because it ceases to be gendered. It just becomes shapes. And I not only sort of related to that, I felt like I haven't heard a lot of other people say that. Like, I feel like I've said that. I've said bodies are just shapes, but like, I really appreciated that he said it. And I wish he kind of kept with that through line. And he says that the music sort of emulates that. And now I wasn't quite sure about that connection, but I liked the idea because, you know, My Bloody Valentine is sort of a, at the time, very sort of new as like an ambient genre with a lot of crunchy sound. And I can see how being swept up in that would make you think of the bodies in the dark. And he just sounded really passionate about the idea. And I was like, this is what you should be writing about, like the things you feel passionate about, instead of just blindly making reference to other theorists. Sorry, that was a lot. I'm calming down. No, no, that's great. Yeah, you can certainly feel his, his enthusiasm when he's talking about My Bloody Valentine and when he's talking about Doom Patrol, the Grant Morrison comic. Because, yeah, clearly he's just a big fan. I, I was tempted to introduce this as, instead of being fan fiction, being fan nonfiction. Um, <laughs> I'm, not sure, I'm not sure that's actually a proper description either, though. It's not particularly nonfiction either. It's more... A personal essay, which I guess is technically nonfiction. That is nonfiction, yes. <laughs> uh, creative nonfiction is what we would call it. So mm -hmm. you came into it kind of thinking this might be like a Doom Patrol novel inspired thing, but after reading it, do you still, would you consider this fan fiction? Yeah, no. This is the least fan fiction thing we've read. There's just no, there's no point at which he actually plays around with characters or a world in a fiction way. Mm -hmm. And um, 
Yeah, I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I, I thought there might be like little pieces of fan fiction or like playing around with formal things or whatever. Like when he's talking about Doom Patrol, he might drift into a little bit of fanfic writing. But no, in that way, actually, it's actually kind of a... The, the form of it is actually more consistent than I was expecting. Like every chapter is his perspective. Every chapter does touch in on Doom Patrol. Every chapter is referencing all these various authors. It's it's kind of actually got a a fairly flat texture. Because like even in our like loosest definition of fan fiction, which would be fiction written by a fan, it the person is a fan but hasn't written any sort of um, narrative. Yeah, right? it's just not fiction. Right. And therefore, we really should not have talked about it, and we're going to have to stop the podcast now. Okay. Getting rid of the bots. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean just this episode. I mean that the whole podcast is over. Okay, like... let me get my book of matches and some oil. And, uh... <laughs> we, we've wandered outside the zone just too far. There's no coming back from this. But, you know, I, I guess, speaking of ending the podcast, um, I question, look, I know we've only been talking for like 30 40 minutes i don't know what the timer's at mm -hmm. but i question how much more useful things we have to say about this maybe we should just talk about doom patrol instead for a while i don't know can we i'd like to yeah we could do that um i will say i've been searching through the text in order to find the places where the author references doom patrol just so i can recenter myself of what it means to be oh a fan fiction podcast right that's what we're doing <laughs> <laughs> so we could talk about some of those too but i'd be happy to do whatever we're we're definitely stepping out of our normal structure right. though i suppose the author would appreciate that maybe is that postmodern tory <laughs> well, you know <laughs> sure yeah well, well like i said it's the air we breathe you know well like technically modern is now so anything after now it is postmodern, so postmodern can only exist in the future. <laughs> it's, that's really funny because I've never heard anyone say that, but like I really <laughs> wish I had. So like technically there is a modernist period and like postmodernist. <laughs> that's crazy. But, oh god. But I don't think we ever really talked about our relationship to Doom Patrol. We kind of jumped into the talk about the essay. Oh, you're right. We should. Yeah, let's go back to Doom Patrol a little bit. Yeah, let, let's transition back into how, what Doom Patrol means to us. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, look, for me, it's the least, because I read some Doom Patrol, but it was like back in high school, and you know, just like volumes from the library. And I remember thinking, this is really cool, and like I remember the Society of Dada, and I remember, you know, some of the characters and such, but I've never gone back to it, and I probably should, because I would probably appreciate a lot of the stuff more than I did as, say, a dumb teen. Um, and like understand more of like the context and and references and that sort of thing. You see, I I don't know about that because like I, well, I saw Doom Patrol was on the docket like a month ago or something, and like read all this like a week ago. I read um the 1987 Grant Morrison run of Doom Patrol, uh, three collected volumes, which is like volume issues number 19 through 41 or so, mm -hmm. which includes a lot of storylines. Um, and a lot of it is very surrealist storytelling, and I'm not sure how I feel about that. It's not something I'm that entertains me so much. It's like a lot of it boils down to like there's some weird threat to all of existence that exists because you think of it, so you unthink of it, so then you think of it, but then it doesn't exist. But then, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of a lot of stuff like that, like, and then the characters in Doom Patrol don't even do much to interfere or fix the story. Like, yeah, it, I'm not surprised this person was drawn to a, a comic where one of the bad guys' societies was the Society of Dadaists, you know? <laughs> They're more anti-heroes, really. Yeah. No, and I also read a little bit of the collected volumes of the 2016 Doom Patrol. A lot of it focused more on Danny the Street which I liked, <laughs> which was Danny the Brick and then Danny the World and then Danny the Ambulance. Right. Yeah. You know, this is making me think a little bit of, I imagine, you know, if I'd read this 
book that we're talking about back in 1995, assuming I wasn't six years old, but my age. Anyway, <laughs> um, that this, you know, like having the cultural context from then would have, there would have been a lot of ideas that felt really new, especially around like things like gender, you know, and performativity yeah. of masculinity and femininity and like, you know, what is a human? So I was thinking about that a bit. So it does make sense the author was drawn to Doom Patrol because it was doing similar things to what the postmodern writers were doing around the same period and a bit before, um, sort of deconstructing these norms. And I, my experience is I've only read a little bit of Doom Patrol, but I did watch the whole series on HBO Max, which, you know, is actually pretty faithful to the source as far as I know. And it's really good. And I, I enjoy the absurdism of it quite a bit. And they focus a lot more on like what is and isn't normal and deconstruct that very well. I, I think that's like, that's the fun part. Like it's a lot about mental health. It's a lot about gender. Like, you know, it's just a lot about being a social misfit, which I understand was not common for superhero comics at the time like watchmen was still like more about the trauma of being a superhero it wasn't about being like a soup like someone with powers who they weren't even just like superpower they were just like sort of flawed in their power you know like being the robot man who has no ability to sense and touch and like none of them really being particularly motivated to be heroes it's a sort of unique story and i really enjoy it for that so, Tori, I was kind of wondering, because the things I liked about Doom Patrol in the comics wasn't so much the storylines or how they solved problems, but it was the um, the characters and how they dealt with them. Because, like, the cast of characters in, like, the run I, I read was um, Robot Man, who's a brain in a robot, uh, Rebus who I think is the name they want to be called during that run, who's the combination of three different people in an intersex body. And oh, what, was the, what was the name of the third one? Uh, Crazy Jane or something? Mm-hmm. The person with a disassociative identity disorder where every identity had different superpower. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I liked the most when I read the comic was when they interacted or talked about their problems. And which was too few for my taste but it seems like mm. with a tv show that that be more um incentive to go into more of that give that more screen time oh yeah i mean that's it's a very character driven show um <laughs> despite you know all of its like fun absurdity and obviously they get to use cool cgi to like do weird stuff like uh wear butts are a thing <laughs> yeah the, the, it's probably from the comic but uh, I don't want to like spoil the show too much. I I give it a recommend. Um, and Alan Tidick, I never know how to say his name. Tidick, uh, whatever. He's the main villain in season one as Mister Nobody, and he's really good at that. He has yeah. um, literally the ability to not just bend reality, but like step outside the fourth wall, and he narrates to the audience through the whole first season. But yeah, the show actually becomes progressively more character focused and character driven. And that's what I find so compelling about it. And I think why, you know, a lot of people even, you know, during the comics run thought of it as a different type of superhero comic. Even yeah. the author of this S, uh, book, series of essays, whatever, <laughs> talks about it like that. It's, it's, it's dissimilar to yeah. even other deconstructionists work deconstruction is superhero work because the characters don't even they're not they don't identify as superheroes yeah they're actually just like people with physical problems <laughs> that yeah. get thrown into saving the world sometimes yeah the the characters themselves refer to themselves in like negative terms uh, as outcasts mm-hmm. and stuff but like each one is like an interesting concept the the transhumanism of the robot if i can't feel or sense do i exist the uh mm-hmm. Uh, intersex being part alien, part human. Trying to figure out who yeah. they are. Other human. Yeah, yeah part other well, human. <laughs> they haven't gotten to that story for uh it's just Larry Trainer with the negative spirit in the show. But hmm. um his story is cool because they made the character gay because Matt Bomer, the actor who plays him in flashbacks and does his voice, because he's always covered in bandages, so another actor physically acts him, is gay. 
So they had this whole story with him. You know, he was like a fighter pilot in World War II, got irradiated, you know, and got the negative spirit from space inside of him. So they do a really good job with his story. I don't know what they're going to do if they go on to the Rebus storyline, because that one's interesting. Initially, I think it was supposed to be transgressive because it was a human man, Larry Trainer, and a human woman, both cisgender, being merged together, his doctor. However, his doctor was also black and he's white. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's something that would, along with the negative spirit, of course, I'm not sure if that's yeah. something that would work well for a... Uh, yeah, you'd have to. I I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what to say that, about that. That's interesting. Also, in that there's another DC hero that's a a black man in this case and a white man merged together into a single body mm. as a superhero, and that's one of the versions of Firestorm. And now I'm thinking, like, when uh. when did that Firestorm come about? Although I feel like you could say blank happened in comics at any point. <laughs> right. Well, I think the early 90s was a time where people were trying to grapple really, really with racial identity, but a lot of the yeah. writers were white. So they felt like the best way to do that was to do these stories of identity. I'm not sure if we would see it the same way in our contemporary context. And I understand yeah. why it's it's a pushing of boundaries. And don't get me wrong. I don't necessarily think it's a bad story told because that could have a lot of ramifications. It's just, I think we understand a lot more culturally how to be sensitive as well as deconstructionist. Yeah, the way they talked about it in the comic was a lot of like, uh, it's a combination of philosophical opposites, man and woman, black and white, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, right. Which is that, insane, it's like, right. if you assume there's a binary option to these things, <laughs> which is a whole nother thing, but they're dealing with, um, being in spaces in between definitions. And I think that's, that was inter- interesting. Mm-hmm. By the way, I do, I do want to mention that the author of you know, I, I forgot, I, ne- I never actually introduced the thing we were reading properly, but it's called Doom Patrols, and it's by Stephen Shaviro. And I should have said that first thing, I'm just, uh, <laughs> it was a weird episode. Anyway, at one point he does, in referencing another author's work, talk about, you know, the, just the physical intersex experience and how this is actually not a binary and actually, like, people's bodies come in all different ways and are just kind of immediately slotted, if at all possible, into one of the two acceptable physical genders by the, you know, the medical establishment and such. Mm-hmm. Um, just thought I'd throw that out there, that it comes up. Yeah, I mean, that was actually, like, sort of the part in the My Bloody Valentine chapter that I liked. It was, yeah, a little bit more about how our bodies are not these binary gendered things. And that was such a good idea and so true. But it didn't carry because, I mean, I I guess we were talking about something else. But there is a part about Rebus in Chapter 3 where mm-hmm. it was like, despite all the authors work on sort of deconstructing bodies, they sort of like end up being fetishizing in this chapter. And it was like really weird to me. They do it multiple times. Like, they say like, oh, gender doesn't matter. Then they start fetishizing gender via these narratives they've been told. And I could read that part, or I, we could just move on. And I we could move on, I think. Yeah. We, we could just like stop doing it. Yeah. I don't need more uncomfortable gender stuff in my life. Yeah, okay, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> and look, like, let me be fair. I think the author was grappling with stuff, like trying to understand gender discourse. Mm-hmm. I don't know the author's gender either, so, but... They clearly had a huge concern with it, and sometimes they were very enlightened, and sometimes they were just like, I don't know, maybe just outmoded. It seems like Doom Patrol in general isn't so much a superhero comic. Because uh, I, I didn't read a lot. I just read some of the 1987 and a little bit the 2016 one. But it's like a lot of it was just a vehicle to talk about these weird ideas concerning like existence in relation to like literature. There was a lot of them in Grant Morrison run about like, oh, these entities only speak in um, anagrams and stuff like 
mm-hmm. weird writing challenges to place on themselves. And like, there was like three different storylines where there was a part where they listed different like foot soldiers where there was like, oh, this cult has this person that only kills you if you say the letter E and stuff like that. And <laughs> weird exploration of those ideas. Um, yeah, I mean, I think Grant Morrison, he's not the only writer who's been in this situation, but, you know, he just had a comic and it had to fit broadly within the general, <laughs> you know, idea of a superhero comic because that's what's publishable or was mm-hmm. publishable, you know, in mainstream comics at the time. And I, I feel like I could think of more examples, but at this instant, I can't of authors who are just like, yeah, it's a, it's a superhero comic. Don't worry about it. At the end of uh, the painting that ate Paris storyline, Superman stands around and looks confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's definitely like distinctly one of those works that. Maybe because Grant Morrison already had some play in the field at the time, I don't know. But it's sort of surprising uh, that, and well, because it was actually a reference to like the Doom Patrol team that showed up in the one comic in 1963. It got so much play. Like, it is so absurd in so many ways, but in the best possible way, I think. Do we just want to talk about Danny the Street for a while? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you might have things to say about Danny the Street, Dom. I I didn't read too much about them. Um, in the 1987 stuff I read, there was this, the storyline where I guess they were introduced. They talked about it like it was no big deal, but I guess that was the introduction. <laughs> where it's just Danny the Street coming back and saying, Hey, I'm back. I picked up some stuff. And then the men from nowhere, but they weren't the real ones. They were a shitty subdivision of it. Attack, and they had the cabaret, the uh, perpetual cabaret or something. But then the 2016 one kind of felt like a reboot. It dealt a lot with, a lot of the lore was surrounding Danny. And I appreciate that instinct (laughs) to bring that in more, more into the story. If it was 2016, I mean, a, Probably two or three half reboots totaling to about one and a half full reboots had happened with DC Comics by that time. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of how they operate. Yeah. And it's like, the, I, I do, in the initial run, they do re- reference Danny the Street as a uh, transvestite mm-hmm. because <laughs> it's a street that has manly stores, like gun stores and army stores, but the fonts are all fancy and they decorate with flowers it's like that's a cool aesthetic i, I appreciate that i i kind of love that i was thinking because um the author there was one point in this uh this work which i will reference no more after this <laughs> the author talks about transvestitism and they're referring to like i think insects or non-human animals i don't even remember the context but at the time, I thought, well, transvestitism is refers to a mode of dress, and the way they were referring to it had nothing to do with dressing. I understand that it's performative as well, but what's cool about like the you know the reboot of Danny the Street in the new show <laughs> is like Danny's just a gender queer street, and like that's yeah. chill. But I was curious because I knew that the street had originally Danny had been referred to as transvestite. And I was like, how could that possibly happen for a street? <laughs> well, okay. You yeah. told me. There we go. Yeah. Like they, 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 they did it very literally. And I think that was really smart and cool. It's kind of funny. Yeah. They, they referred to Danny with he, him pronouns, which I don't think carries much weight in the 87 version, but it does in the 2016 version. And at one point, Danny talks about how they wouldn't rather do anything else besides this, except to maybe wear, get into a good pair of eight-inch heels. <laughs> so, is the 2016 series also written by Grant Morrison? No. That's always interesting, when you have someone, like, really picking up another author's toys, uh, who had such an extremely strong arth- authorial voice in this kind of shared universe sort of situation. Yeah. Well, they had more of a story in it so i think Mm -hmm. that makes more sense this might be just a little bit tangential but like um i've been watching this the series we're here on hbo recently 
which is about um it's a like a reality show however you call this uh bob the drag queen and two other drag queens i don't know three real life drag queens i forget their names <laughs> um, go into small very small towns and then you know throughout the episode sort of like queer eye they get people but they get the people to do a big drag show by the end of it and of course there's a lot of pushback because they're going to small towns and like two of them are black and like i don't know usually the people they draw in have sort of like diverse stories they're talking about which is what makes it sort of like queer eye but that was really interesting because i think two of the drag queens on the show identify as non-binary and i was like you know back in the day there used to be this like well not even that long like eh. there used to be more of a criticism of drag because it was like all about oh well, these gay men are like performing mocking femininity but more and more, it seems like drag queens are coming out as non-binary or gender fluid or gender queer. And like, we're talking about, oh, hey, yeah. Like we used to have this conversation where it was all about sexuality and like your sexuality somehow had a definitive space in gender perform performativity. But now people are having language to say like, well, this is what distinguishes gender from performativity and from sexuality. And I think that's, cool that that's becoming so much on the mainstream because it wasn't 10 years ago mm -hmm. i mean when i came out as trans it was like yeah less than 10 years ago because before that i just didn't have the language so i think culture is changing a lot and it's neat to see how like we reflected language in that like danny the street was a transvestite oh yeah cool terminology and whatnot, but like now Nanny the Street is genderqueer because we're advancing how we think about gender and performativity, if that makes sense. Do they actually use the term genderqueer in the show? Yeah, in the show. That's Danny's they pronouns <laughs> and is genderqueer. That's how they refer to them. So Love that rep. It, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say even if it's a street, but especially if it's a sentient street. <laughs> oh yeah, they're definitely a sentient street at like they're very clear about the pronouns that Dad uses. Nice. Which I is feel fun. this is very unfair. I don't remember seeing a single male sentient street in media. <laughs> I think <laughs> I think representation for male sentient streets. Uh, I got to complain to somebody about this. <laughs> to be fair, I don't think there are any female sentient streets either. So. Well, I yeah, mean, but as a man, I have a louder voice. That is so true. Yeah. I think we should address my concerns first. I will, however, settle for a male sentient brick. <laughs> or ambulance. Wait a uh, sec. I, I look forward to your uh, campaign on Twitter. <laughs> 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 now, I know that this is not a good stopping point specifically, because like the work that we were nominally discussing, <laughs> this has had no shape or narrative to speak of. Uh, but it, it, the hour is getting late. So I think I might want to try to wrap up this discussion. Yeah, Ahmad, but it doesn't matter when nothing is, like, extant, really. <laughs> if, like, what you say doesn't matter, so it doesn't matter what you say, so, you know. <sighs> so just say yeah. anything, right? Yeah. But okay, don't, well, don't, don't let it be wrong, though, so. Yeah. We'll say anything, and then say that it's right, and then reference one of, like, ten different authors in a short quote that's somewhat irrelevant after that. And you're okay. gold. So free of all of the impositions of culture and the established hegemony, I guess I'm going to use the words of Nietzsche and ask, um, what is it that you want to complain about from the work tonight? You know what? Maybe we can just skip that one. What do we want to praise on the way out um, from Doom Patrols by Stephen Shaviro? As someone who hasn't read it, I just want to say I hope this person figured out their gender issues. As, as a fellow trans person, it can be tough. And back in 95, there wasn't resources for it. And it, that's fucking sucks. And I just wish them all the best. And, yeah. And also, for anything that we complain about, like, this, this guy wrote this, what is it, 20 years ago now? No, not quite that um more oh, 20 25 like i'm sure 
I'm sure anyone would look back at their 25-year-old postmodernist treaties and think like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I would do that differently now. I'm sure. And, you know, look, we've all sort of, well, at least I probably have, fallen into this sort of academic tryst, right? Mm -hmm. Where you said, oh, this is a, such a compelling sort of era of academia. And it's being validated externally, right? It's being validated by like, oh, these people are smart because they're published and because they're considered smart and they must have things to say. And so if you fall into that, you know, I get it. I just hope that you find a way to like find a reasonable way out. I will say, you know, just sort of a side note. It is funny because most of what they reference is just like postmodern theorists and like Foucault and, you know, Bataille and you know, Deleuze and Guattari, but then they also like really love Richard Dawkins. And I was like, mm. he is a very strict scientist, right? Like he wrote The God <laughs> Delusion. Like, I don't understand how you can rectify those ideologies, but you know, you loved what you loved and I hope you found a place of peace. And yeah, like some of the gender discourse in here is actually really interesting, especially for the time. So we were just talking about, I was just talking about yeah. this. We did not have a lot of that language or understanding, and it was hard to come to those sort of conclusions. And despite the lack of language and context, the author has sort of a perspective on gender that I think at times is pretty enlightened. Um, and I agree with Dom, like wherever <laughs> they were with it, I hope they found their, yeah. their place and their peace, you know. There's been like quite a few like queer people I've met where it's like, I don't like you as a person, but good for you and keep fighting the fight. <laughs> right. Like, sometimes this author uses the term drag really well, but there's one time they're talking about this species of lizards that are like, um, you know, functionally female, quote unquote, but they reproduce asexually, but some of the lizards perform like acts of like, I don't know, like mounting or humping other lizards. And they referred to that as drag. And I was just like, I, I don't like there's a time where you really understood <laughs> that gender was performative. And now you're like almost saying like any lesbian couple that's used a toy is doing drag, right? Like any cis lesbian couple or like any, even if you're not talking about cis lesbians, like I was just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> Sorry. You, you almost over. got out of praise, Tori. <laughs> you sorry, almost sorry. made it. <laughs> so close. So close. Anyway, this uh, author had well, a lot of interesting ideas, and I'm proud of them for putting them out there at the very least. And, you know, I'd like to see how they think now, to be honest, because mm -hmm. they probably come a long way in 25 years. Well, we could probably look that up if I wasn't so lazy intellectually about, you know, doing my research and that kind of thing. Um, but as for my praise on the way out, I've mentioned it before, but I, I admire the fan passion. And you see it here that like this dude really liked Grant Morrison's Doom Patrol and got a lot out of it and was eager to talk about it. And like you just see that fanness, you know, oozing out of him a lot of the time when he's not trying too hard to connect it to some philosopher I don't know or whatever. Which is like 90% of the 95% of the time. <laughs> but. <laughs> They also clearly oh. had a really strong passion for My Bloody Valentine, which, like... That's true. <laughs> respect. Yeah. I, I never got to see them in live, but I imagine it would be sort of like what this author described, which was actually sort of beautiful. Mm. <laughs> All right. I think I'm going to declare that we are done, then. This is episode 124 of Retro Fanfic Retrospective, Doom Patrols by Stephen Shaviro which is fiction, I swear, because he says it is. And it it does involve Doom Patrol by Grant Morrison. So um, fan, fan fiction, well, right? That's, that's close enough. It's, it's the right ballpark. You can find a print version of it out in the wild, published by Serpent's Tale, but you can also still find it for free on the author's personal website at dhalgren.com. We will provide a link to that in the show notes. The intro song for the podcast is The Weekly Fair off of the album Popey's Incredible Adventure by Komiku. The outro song is Run Against the Universe from the same album. You can find that album and other works by Komiku at loyaltyfreakmusic.com. The show is edited by Dom Davis. 
who is present. Yeah. And we'll have to listen to this whole discussion again to yeah. edit probably a couple of times. Yeah. At the, at this particular moment, I'm like three drinks in and sober Dom doesn't like listening to drunk Dom as much. <laughs> so that'll be Lots fun. of things to look forward to, Dom. Yes. <laughs> you can find our website at retrofanficretrospective.podbean.com or bit.ly slash retrofanfic. And if you have questions or comments or thoughts about the episode, you can contact us on Twitter at RetroFanfic, Facebook at RetroFanfic, send us an email at RetroFanficRetrospective at gmail.com. You could leave comments or reviews on your podcast service, whichever one you use, and any of those would be greatly appreciated. I'm Amato. I'm Tori. Dom. We're just three postmodern life forms trying to figure out what postmodernism is. Until <laughs> next time, take care. Like, if modernism was a period, so that anything after that was postmodern, right? Yeah, that's. That, that is a large part of the argument. However, <laughs> it's just not. It's just not. Like, just like any movement of art, it's like the movement of postmodern architecture is completely different from the movement of postmodern theory, you know? Right. The, so, like, the Macarena is postmodern. Yeah. No, really, it is.